Most people don't know very much about Seventh-day Adventists, besides the fact that they worship on a Saturday and not on a Sunday. But there's more to this unique sect of religion that traces its roots to the American frontier. So today's episode is a listener-requested episode. Um, a listener's requested for us to just kind of dive into Seventh-day Adventism and the theology and background of that religion. So to start off with, most people aren't very familiar with Seventh-day Adventists with the exception of practice the Sabbath on Saturday. But what is Seventh-day Adventism and what does its name mean? It, the name probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people. You know, you're thinking, well, we've got four weeks of Advent coming up here. Um <laughs> So it, it's two parts. The seventh day part refers to the fact that they worship on Saturday as their principal day of worship. They want to treat it as a true Sabbath, as a day of rest. The Adventism part, um, Advent means like the arrival or the coming, which is why we're celebrating Advent right before Christmas. Right. That's dealing with the first coming of Christ primarily. Although if you pay attention to the readings, especially in the first two weeks, uh, you'll hear a lot about Christ's second coming. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, because we believe in Adventism of a certain sort, but Adventism was this religious movement beginning in the 19th century that was kind of obsessed with the second coming of Christ. And so they're part of that family of movements, but they are the species within the family that celebrates on Saturday. So what is the history of the Adventist movement as a whole? And then where does the Seventh-day Adventism part of this come from? Great. So a guy named William Miller, uh, who was popular during the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century. He was talking about how Christ was going to literally return in the flesh in either 1843 or 1844. There's a series of predictions based upon his readings of the Bible. And a lot of people, um, a lot of Baptists particularly, kind of flock into this movement. There's kind of, I mean, 19th century American Christianity is a pretty wild ride. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the kind of respectable 16th century Protestantism with these carefully written treatises and everything else. When you're on the frontier, when you got this real pioneer Christianity, and it, in many cases really is just, here's a couple of guys with a Bible sitting around saying what they think it might mean with no theological training or background, no real sense of history or understanding other than maybe the uh, oftentimes very anti-Catholic education they got. Mm-hmm. And they end up being really obsessed in some of these cases, as with William Miller and his kind of large uh, band of followers, with the idea of when is Christ going to return, trying to predict it. This leads to what is called the Great Disappointment of 1844, when, spoiler alert, Christ does not return in 1844. As we know today. (laughs) Strangely... This doesn't end William Miller's influence. (laughs) You would think building your whole movement around Jesus is going to return in 1843 or 1844. By at least 1845, you'd be done. You would think. Now, certainly a lot of people do stop following Miller at this point. But there are three other groups that form trying to understand why they were disappointed. why, Why Jesus let them down by not being a Millerite, basically. The first school of thought... Uh, is a guy by Joseph Turner is associated with this. This is called the shut door interpretation. And they say, you know, 
it did happen. Christ did return spiritually in the sense that the door is now shut. Everyone who was saved at the moment we expected him to return is saved. No one else can be saved. The door is shut. Judgment has been passed. The final judgment has happened. It's just happened invisibly. And we'll find out at the end of our lives what, what it turned out to be. Now, obviously, um, since no one here listening to this podcast was alive in 1844, we realize that's not really a very workable theory. Because it ends up just saying, final judgment's over and done with, and now everything is just set in stone. So all of our lives would be basically a waste. <laughs> there was a movement against that uh, by a guy named Joshua V. Himes, uh, who founded what became called the Advent Christian Church. It's still Adventist, it's still trying to do all of this Millerite stuff, but it rejects shut-door theology, and it takes a more minimalist view. Uh, it kind of moves away from some of the weirder traditions the Millerites had started to do. And Himes actually convinces William Miller that his interpretation is correct. So this is the second view. But there's a third view, uh, Hiram, or Hiram Edson uh, has called investigative judgment. And investigative judgment is it. So... Hiram Edson considers himself a prophet, thinks he has visions, and is really upset trying to figure out why Christ didn't come back. And so he says he's having a walk through the field when he has a vision of Jesus in heaven, entering into what he calls the second apartment in heaven. And so this leads him to the realization, so to speak, that what happened in 1844 wasn't an earthly event at all, but a heavenly one. So all of these things that they had thought were prophecies about Christ's return to earth were actually prophecies about Christ cleansing the sanctuary in heaven. So quite conveniently, none of it is visible. Quite conveniently, <laughs> they don't need safe. to explain. Right. And so Ellen Gold White in the Seventh-day Adventist movement is born out of this third strand of Millerite, or post-Miller, Milleritism. Now I want to say something else here. Uh, Charles Taze Russell the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, is very influenced by some Adventist thinkers and preachers. Uh, and so you're going to see a very similar story if we talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. They predict the end of the world is going to happen actually during World War I, and it doesn't, but you'll still find them today saying, actually, it did end invisibly. Um, there's a great line, I think I've used it on this podcast before, from Brideshead Revisited, where... Uh, the Canadian is uh, he's married or I'm sorry he's engaged to a Catholic so he's taking lessons mm -hmm. trying to discern if he should become Catholic but he's pretty clearly just going through all of the motions trying to give the right answers and so the priest is is grilling him on this trying to get a sense for whether he has anything like the faith or any remote understanding of Christianity and he said okay what about papal infallibility let's say the Pope were to say that it's going to rain this afternoon, and you went outside and it was sunny. And so Rex, the Canadian guy, he responds, well, I, I suppose that it would just be raining invisibly, and we were all too <laughs> sinful to see it. It's like an emperor's clothes kind of thing, but in real life in the American frontier. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this really is emperor's clothes, both with Jehovah's Witnesses and the group we're going to talk about today, Seventh-day Adventists. They go through these incredible logical leaps to try to explain why their predictions aren't coming true 
and how they're actually coming true invisibly and we just can't see it. So the system gets more and more complicated Mm -hmm. to cover up the fact that it's obviously built on falsehood. So historically, we have all of these sects of Adventists wandering around trying to predict when Christ is going to come. How did we get here? Why are they believing this? Or why are they trying to find that last day? Yeah, so I think really we want to talk about a couple things. There are a few things that go wrong before 1843, before 1844. First of all, they have this unhealthy focus on Adventism in the first place. What I mean here is you don't build your religion around a guess or even a carefully researched guess Mm -mm. about when Jesus is coming back. Instead, your entire life should be built ready for him to return at any moment, but also ready for you to go to him at any moment. So Mark 13, 32 to 37, Jesus talks about this very beautifully. Referring to the last days, he says, But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each which his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I shall say to you, I say to all, watch. Now I want to make a quick theological point here. When he talks about the son not knowing, what he means there is that he is the revelation of the father, and that revelation doesn't include the day or time of his second coming. Uh, The Catechism explains that what he speaks of not knowing here, elsewhere he alludes to having, so he literally does know, but it's not part of his role as the Son of Revelation, Mm -hmm. that he's not revealing here or now or ever the second coming. You know when we're going to know when the second coming happens? When it happens. When it happens. When we're living it. (laughs) And so he talks repeatedly about how it's going to be a surprise. It's not going to happen when you expect it to happen. And so this whole movement... Mm -hmm. That tries to say, no, it's going to happen here, it's going to happen now, it's going to happen at this point, is extremely unhealthy. And of course, by no means is this limited to Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists. Mainstream evangelicals are often wrapped up in this same sort of unhealthy spirituality, where they're trying to guess when Christ is coming back. And, and it's just terrible. So, you know, for example, uh, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind book series. Yep. Uh, Jerry Falwell said that in terms of its impact on Christianity, it's probably greater than any other book in modern times outside of the Bible. Well, that is uh, extremely disturbing because the books are all about kind of sketching out a vision for Christ's return. Mm -hmm. A vision that he has no basis for. He's talking about the rapture and all this theological stuff that's just nonsense that we don't see before the 19th century when you have this kind of frontier Protestantism that goes kind of nuts. But people buy into it because 80 million copies of the Left Behind series have been sold. And like we were looking up before this episode, like they made a movie of this in 2014. So it's something that's still relevant. Right. Nicolas Cage seems to have a real attraction towards religiously off-base movies between that and uh, Dan Brown's series. Like it's... These are striking out. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Sorry, Nick Cage, if you're listening. But the reality is that this is something people are very interested mm-hmm. in. Well, here's the kind of scary part. So, you know, we also saw it. I want to actually, sorry, we'll give one more example. Uh, the family radio movement, uh, a guy named Harold Camping, 
uh, started predicting the end of the world uh, back in, I believe it was 2011 or 2012. And he was saying that's when the world was going to end. And so they had billboards talking about the day Christ was going to come back. And it was just absurd. Of course, it did. spoiler alert, it didn't happen. We're still here today. Right. Well, here's the thing. Harold Camping isn't here today. And Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left mm. Behind books, isn't here today. Nope. Both of them died. And so rather than investing their time and energy into figuring out when Christ was going to come to them, they should have been preparing for that unknown day upon which they were going to Christ. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have the privilege of knowing the day on which we're going to die. And the vast majority of us, it's safe to say, will die rather than being still alive for the second coming of Christ. So I think, I think this whole Adventist movement is born out of an unhealthy aversion to death within people's lives. If you mm. get to know Christ is going to come back January 13th, 2019, well, great. Yeah. I don't have to buy my wife a wedding present. <laughs> but I can go live how I want to. I get right. to know the exact day. It all becomes in my control. Mm -hmm. I can prepare because I know exactly when it's going to happen. But if Christ's return is more like a pop quiz or like death, well, you don't know when that's going to happen, so you need to be always ready. Like, if you know when the final is, you can plan accordingly. A pop quiz you can't plan for, you just always have to be ready. Mm -hmm. And Christ is very clear that his return is more like the pop quiz. He's going to come when you don't expect it. But if he comes when we do expect it, we can live how we want. So the, the tragic thing was, Harold Camping's followers, his family radio stuff, we saw this up close probably something similar happened with the Millerites in the 1840s. Mm -hmm. People spent indulgently. They went on vacations. They did all this stuff that is actually a terrible way of preparing to meet Jesus. Yeah. But if you just think, well, the game's about to end. The show's about over. No need to give to the poor because they're not going to be poor in a week because Jesus is coming back. So it led to this really unhealthy spirituality that all was rooted in this idea that we could know these things that we're told we can't know. So it actually is a, it's a terrible, like Adventism in general is a terrible approach to Christianity because it puts it all on our timetable that if we just study enough or read enough scripture or do enough divining through history, we can somehow put together a timeline of Christ's return and we can plan around that. And that is not what we're told to do. We're told to be watchful, but ready to go at any point. But it seems like there's an even deeper issue here, which is a lack of respect for tradition and the church. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that... When they're looking at their whole spiritual approach with Adventism, and we've already said it's ahistorical. It's not at all what early Christians were focused on. It's not how they were. They weren't building these elaborate timelines for the return of Christ, for the most part. I mean, occasionally mm -hmm. you'll find people who this becomes an obsession for. But for mainstream Christianity in the early centuries, the Church Fathers, for example, you're not seeing this kind of emphasis. But moreover, like... This frontier Christianity is so unmoored from anything like tradition and from the church that they're able to come to these conclusions that nobody's ever come to before. And they're just like, well, I guess nobody ever read scripture as closely as we've done it. Or we have the gift of prophecy and they didn't. Or they come up with some explanation for why it's okay. So they don't have to agree with centuries worth of Christians before. But it means that they can come to any conclusion no matter how insane it might seem. Mm -hmm. And because there's no like hierarchy or checks and balances it's a free-for-all yeah it ends up being quite a free-for-all you're not checked by any living authority mm -mm. nor are you checked by the authority of tradition so this is 
this lack of respect for tradition is something that we see in other aspects of their doctrine as well. Can you talk a little bit about Seventh-day Adventists and their view of the Trinity? So if you think about how important Adventism is vis-a-vis the Trinity, it should be clear that what we believe about God is infinitely more important than the historical question of when Jesus is going to return. Mm -hmm. What we find is that Adventism is actually a movement centered around the Advent, the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. And so it doesn't have the same sort of doctrinal uh, clarity or strength around the dramatically more important questions of the Trinity, for example. So one of the early founders of the movement, Joseph Bates, who was the one who kind of brought Ellen Gold and her husband into believing in the seventh day uh, Sabbath, Mm -hmm. like into Saturday, Sabbatarianism is what it's called. Joseph Bates was anti-Trinitarian. But I want you to hear uh, this great quote. So I'm actually indebted here to a, a work called God, the Trinity, and Adventism, an introduction to the issues. And it's, it was published in the Journal of the Adventist Theological Societies, written by a Seventh-day Adventist, who's explaining from an Adventist perspective that they don't actually agree, even with each other, about the Trinity. Hmm. So he's quoting Joseph Bates, who's anti-Trinitarian. And he says, Respecting the Trinity, I concluded that it was impossible for me to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, was also the Almighty God, the Father, one and the same being. End quote. Well, now, what you immediately see here is that he has no idea what the Trinity is. No, no concept. This is not an accurate understanding of the Trinity. So these are the theological lights that they're trying to navigate Mm -hmm. by having just no real clue. And so this is a religion built by theologically incompetent people. And I I say that as kindly as I can, just to say that the people who started this may have been well-meaning, they may have been trying to understand Scripture without any sort of help by the church, without any sort of help by tradition, and trusting much too much in themselves and their alleged prophetic abilities. So it leads them to opposite views of whether or not the Trinity is true. That's incomprehensible Mm -hmm. that you can't, you know, even know something as foundational as that. So in this work that I mentioned before, Dennis Fortin, the author, he talks about a controversy within Adventism from a hundred years ago, a controversy over pantheism and how Arianism, uh, the view that says basically Jesus is created by nature, he didn't exist before the Father brought him into existence, and he's subordinate to the Father, These were popular views within Adventism as well. So not only were they not sure about the Trinity, they're not sure about the divinity of Jesus, they're not sure about whether or not he's created, they're not sure about whether or not pantheism is true, and they're not sure about whether or not the Holy Spirit should be understood as a person within the Godhead or simply as a divine force. And so he concludes from this, yet today questions persist and there is a resurgence of anti-Trinitarian view among Adventists. Some wish to reclaim the teachings of our Adventist pioneers on the Godhead and deny the full and eternally pre-existence deity of Jesus and the personal deity of the Holy Spirit. End quote. So that's where they are. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any respect for tradition, if everyone's just left to read scripture as they understand it, and if there's no authority capable of adjudicating these things, you quickly find that people reading scripture are often confused because the Old Testament talks all about how there's one God. 
Jesus, though, presents himself as acting in the person of God. But then there are these confusing passages, like the one we just read from Mark 2, mm -hmm. where he talks about something that he allegedly doesn't know and the Father does. And so people, they get confused by this. And the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is very important, but is it a, a divine force or is it a person? All of these things are worked out in the light of tradition and in the church as the Holy Spirit guides our understanding of revelation. But if you take that revelation apart from the church that received it and just say, well, found this Bible on the ground. I'm going to pick it up and just tell you what it looks like, what it means to me. Chances are you're not going to be right about even some of the yeah. big issues. No. And so, like, there is no cut and dry, one size fits all answer to what Adventists believe about the Trinity. Because if you, there's probably a different answer for a good majority of different Adventists. And this is, I think, ultimately the question. So, you know, one of the things people want to know is, what do you do if an Adventist knocks on the door? How do you respond to them? <laughs> the question, in some ways, is like it's hard to say. Yeah. Like it's hard to even know uh, what it is they believe because they don't have a clear sense of what it is they believe. I mean, again, I want to emphasize. What I just read to you was not some anti-Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. author saying, what a crazy religion, it doesn't know what it believes about anything about God. No, this is from an Adventist author saying, well, we don't really know what we believe about God. Which I think emphasizes, again, what we drive home a lot here at the Catholic Podcast, which is if you encounter a Seventh-day Adventist or an Adventist, like there's really an emphasis on listening to where they're coming That's from. That's such a good point. Because if you want to know what this particular person believes, you're not going to find it out from this podcast. Nope. You're not going to find it out from anti-Seventh-day Adventist stuff on the internet. You're not even really going to find it out from their own website. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to talk to the person, listen to them. And remember, this is a person who, even though they're probably very off base on a lot of issues, is someone who is trying to know and love Jesus Christ and trying to understand scripture and respond to revelation as they understand it and so patiently listen and then maybe walk with them trying to understand why do you think it means this and might it not mean this other thing instead I, I wish there was an easier way to do it but instructing the ignorant is a work of mercy mm -hmm. and here it might just be a very patient walking through with someone who is very well intentioned in yeah. most cases yeah you, the heart of that desire is something that's good it's just been twisted Okay, so we have Adventism as an umbrella, and then under that umbrella we have Seventh-day Adventism. So what distinguishes them from the rest of this Adventist movement as a whole? So there are really two big things. Uh, the first one is the Seventh-day part, what's mm -hmm. called Sabbatarianism. It's the idea that the Christian day of worship, the principal one, ought to be Saturday rather than Sunday. And it's based on the Old Testament, it's based on their understanding of the Ten Commandments, and they'll say, you can't change it from Saturday to Sunday, because if you can change that part of the Ten Commandments, can't you change the part about thou shall not kill, or can't you change, you know, so right. that's Sabbatarianism in a nutshell. And then Ellen Gold White is one of the founders, and was believed to be a prophet, and is kind of the chief prophet within the Seventh-day Adventist movement. What did Ellen Gold White have to say about the Sabbath? So she has a book called The Great Controversy, in which she claims that in the early part, I'll quote her directly, she says, quote, In the early part of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine issued a decree making Sunday a public festival throughout the Roman Empire. The Day of the Sun was reverenced by his pagan subjects and was honored by Christians. It was the Emperor's policy to unite the conflicting interests of heathenism and Christianity. He was urged to do this by the bishops of the church, who, inspired by ambition and thirst for power, 
perceived that if the same day was observed by both Christians and heathens, it would promote the nominal acceptance of Christianity by pagans, and thus advance the power and glory of the church. End quote. Now, a couple of things that are going to be prominent features. One, even though they try to be Bible only, mm-hmm. you'll find that people like this or like Tim LaHaye, like people who get really into end times prophecies, end up being obsessively focused on history. And they tend to also be really bad at history. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that you have this, and also in the case of Tim LaHaye, uh, hatred of the Catholic Church yep. and a belief that the Catholic Church is going to somehow be involved uh, with the end times. We already talked about Adventism. Mm-hmm. I Just as a footnote to that, Seventh-day Adventists believe that the papacy is going to be uh, somehow responsible with the Antichrist for trying to hunt down all the Sabbath keepers. So even though, I'll point out, you can fulfill your Sunday obligation by going to Mass on Saturday <laughs> evening, they think that we hate Saturday worship so much that we want to hunt them down and kill them for it. And so they've tried to be a little squishier and squirm out of that a little bit as a church in mm-hmm. recent years, because now that Adventists know Catholics, I think even a lot of Adventists are like, uh, actually, that part doesn't seem very believable. Yeah. But this is what their church officially taught and teaches um, about the papacy, about the role of the Catholic Church. But notice that she's claiming here, the historical claim is that Constantine, at the urging of the, the Catholic Church, uh, changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday in the 4th century. And this is rooted in a vision she claims to have had in 1850, in which she said, The Pope has changed the day of rest from the seventh to the first day. He has thought to change the very commandment that was given to cause man to remember his creator. He has thought to change the greatest commandment in the Decalogue and thus make himself equal with God, or even exalt himself above God. End quote. And from this, she concludes that the Pope is the Antichrist. So the idea that the Pope is the Antichrist is rooted in a vision she is said to have had of the Pope changing this and then getting Constantine basically serving as his lackey uh, to change the day of worship. That is historically just nonsense. Yep. Uh, and so as we're going to see, even Seventh-day Adventists, so uh, Dr. Uh, Samuele uh, Bakioki who I believe is now deceased, was a fantastic Adventist scholar who looked at the history of Sunday versus Saturday worship. And he was obviously very interested in the question because he was someone who worshipped on Saturday and thought it was important. Right. But even he had to concede that all of this stuff about Constantine in the 4th century is just garbage. So here's what he says. Quote, The earliest documents mentioning Sunday worship go back to Barnabas, that's the Epistle of Barnabas, in 135. I want to add something here. Even though he dates it to 135, some scholars dated the document he's talking about as early as 70 AD. And Justin Martyr in 150. Thus it is evident that Sunday worship was already established by the middle of the 2nd century. This means that to be historically accurate, the term century should be changed to the singular century. This simple correction would enhance the credibility of the great controversy. Because it is relatively easy to defend general Sabbath observance during the first century, but it is impossible to do it for the second century. End quote. So, where Ellen Gold White had said over the centuries they moved from Saturday to Sunday worship, he would say, well, we can defend over the century if we say, well, they were probably still worshiping on Saturday in the first century, 
But even he acknowledges that all of the documents from the second century are going to contradict this idea. Now, I think it's important to note here that there isn't actually good evidence for widespread Saturday worship in the first century. So we're going to look at that. Um, I think we look, well, he mentioned Justin Martyr from about 150. So let's talk about him. In his book, The First Apology, he is explaining and defending Christianity against the Romans. And he outlines the whole liturgy. We've talked about this work before. It's fantastic. Yep. And I, I really urge listeners to, to read it. It's not very long. It's very clear. And it shows that uh, these Catholic practices like the Mass actually date back to the ancient times. Justin Martyr is writing around 150, but he's not saying, hey, we just invented this thing called the Mass a few weeks ago. It's brand new, and we right. should try it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about something that's already ancient by 150. So when he's talking about the worship, here's what he says. And on this day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader is ceased, the president, or we'd say presider, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we before said, when our prayers ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. Another way of translating that would be Eucharatized. Mm -hmm. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Okay, well, there's a few things there. There's a ton there liturgically. We could talk all oh, yeah. about the stuff going That's on there. Podcast. Even the fact that they're sending the Eucharist out of the liturgical assembly to those who are absent shows that they believe that Christ is present there, not just during the Mass, but outside of it. Right. But this isn't the only place he talks about that. So you get a much fuller sense of his Eucharistic theology elsewhere in the first apology here we're only focused on the fact that clearly um, this is all centered around sunday worship like that is the principal day of worship and then he goes on and says sunday is a day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which god having wrought a change in the darkness and matter made the world and jesus christ our savior on the same day rose from the dead for he was crucified on the day before that of saturn which means on the day before Saturday, on Friday. Mm -hmm. And on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. End quote. So he's viewing Sunday worship as something that ultimately comes from Christ's own teaching. Right. And has a root both in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The creation of the world, but then of course in the resurrection. So this is what's called the Lord's Day. This is, in Latin, we say Dies Domini, which mm -hmm. is the name of a great work by JP2, uh, where he talks about why we worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday. But we can actually go back even before 150. We can go back before 135. So even though uh, the Adventist scholar that I quoted before said, okay, we got to give them the second century, but we can still claim the first century. We're going to go back all the way to the first decade of the second century. This is about the year 107. St. Ignatius of Antioch is writing to the Magnesians, uh, and he's writing about this same question. Well, listen to how much he sounds like Justin. He's going to warn them not to get caught up in, in Judaizing, in the Jewish law, 
and in trying to live according to that law. And in that context, he's going to tell them, yeah, we don't worship on Saturday. We worship on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not just a sect of Judaism. We have this new revelation, Jesus Christ. And so he warns them, be not deceived with strange doctrines, nor with old fables, which are unprofitable. For if we still live according to the Jewish law, we acknowledge that we have not received grace. And then he speaks of those, therefore, who were brought up in the ancient order of things, who have come to the possession of a new hope, quote, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death, end quote. 107, we find that they're not worshiping on the Saturday Sabbath. They're worshiping on Sunday, which they call Dies Domini, mm -hmm. the day of the Lord. But this goes back even further. So Ignatius of Antioch is a student of the Apostle John. And John says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and then the prophecy that he's going to get to the seven mm -hmm. churches. So the revelation that they're focused on, you know, a lot of the end time stuff they're talking about is centered around their interpretation of revelation. But it's fascinating that John situates it on the Lord's Day. Mm -hmm. Why does that matter? Because it shows that this notion of Sunday as the Lord's Day existed. Now, an Adventist listening might say, well, he doesn't say he's at church on the Lord's Day. Fine. But he does distinguish between the Sabbath and the Sunday Lord's Day. And we find that explanation from his student Ignatius. Like, you have to read those two things together. Right. Because Ignatius explains much more that when we say the Lord's Day, we're referring to the day on which Christians come together to worship. And that it's the day of the resurrection. That's why it's the Lord's Day. Because of Christ rising from the dead. And so this allusion to the Lord's Day is rich if you know the historical context. And it shows also that we're now going back to the apostles themselves not just to some second century tradition. So in fact, you can't trace Christian Sabbath worship as a norm, even in the first century. So why do Christians celebrate on a Sunday? And how do they justify the celebration in light of the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments? Well, the main reason is because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and is the fulfillment of the law. So everything uh, preceding Christ is building up to him. So we can get into a much deeper conversation with the different types of Old Testament law. Mm -hmm. Basically, you have three types. You have these ceremonial laws, you have moral laws, and you have these uh, juridic laws. Mm -hmm. Basically, some of the laws are preparations for the coming of Christ. They're all of these things that are imposed on the Jewish people to chasten them, to separate them from the broader Gentile world around them, and to, in all of these various ways, large and small, Prepare them for the fact that God himself is going to come and dwell among them. You have the juridic laws, which are the laws of the nations of Israel. That as any governing society, it needs certain laws. Then you have the moral laws, which relate to things that are right and wrong. The moral law is eternal in the sense that it's a reflection of God's own you know, morality. Mm -hmm. It's a reflection of true morality, in other words. So if something is immoral to do... Uh, of itself, it's still immoral, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether right. you've not even received the law. And so there it's just expressing what's already the case, that some things are just immoral to do. Mm -hmm. So when we say that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, we mean that all of this preparatory law 
all of this ceremonial law is fulfilled by him. The juridic law stops once Israel ceases to be a country. Right. So all of those parts of the law go away. The moral law of itself also goes away in a certain sense. So we don't stone people to death for adultery, right? Like the penalties mm -hmm. of the law are gone. However, inasmuch as the law tells us, for example, that adultery is wrong, that's still true. So right. the moral law is still of educational impact. It's still of educational force. But Christ fulfills the law and is Lord of the Sabbath. And so what the Sabbath was preparing us for is expressed in the life of Christ and in the resurrection. And therefore, the Sunday worship is really the fulfillment of what Saturday worship was preparing us for right. in the Old Testament. We see this uh, throughout Scripture. So the idea of Christ as Lord of the Sabbath and being above the Sabbath is explicit in Mark 2. In 23 to 28, uh, we find uh, Jesus and the apostles going through the fields and the disciples begin to pluck uh, ears of grain. And the Pharisees are saying, why are you doing what's unlawful to do on the Sabbath? This shows how sick their legalism has become. Yeah. The Sabbath is about not doing work. It's about having time of true leisure that you can worship God. And they're worried that the apostles, who are casually just like playing with ears of grain, <laughs> are violating this. In other words, the apostles are truly recreating. They're yeah. enjoying the company of the living God while they fiddle with something with their hands. <laughs> but this legalistic interpretation of the Pharisees is focused on, well, doesn't that count as work? You're, you're messing with grain and all. And it's absurd. Uh -huh. It misses the point completely. And so Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so he says two things there. He shows himself as higher than the Sabbath and the one for whom the Sabbath exists. And then he does this reality check that the Sabbath is something that's supposed to enhance your life. This kind of Seventh-day Adventism legalism around the Sabbath that the Pharisees had is the antithesis of what Jesus is calling us for. So this is another question people have is, well, why isn't uh, Sunday observed rigorously mm. now part of that is people don't take sunday worship seriously they don't take the idea of leisure seriously right and that's on them however we don't want to go to the other extreme of becoming legalistic about it mm -hmm. if you're saying well am i allowed to use my remote on sunday or is that too much exertion i mean it sounds like an absurd thing yeah. but i'm telling you that within sects of judaism mm -hmm. that kind of legalism became predominant yep and so it's easy to lose sight of why the Sabbath exists and just focus on the rules. Mm -hmm. And so Christ is reminding us that it's for our good and ultimately to lead us to him. And so we have evidence that the early Christians, even in the New Testament, are worshiping on Sunday. We already talked about the Lord's Day part in Revelation. 1 Corinthians 16 talks about setting aside the weekly offering, quote, on the first day of every week, end quote. Now, that's not much. We don't have a full description of the liturgy, mm -hmm. but it seems to be an allusion to the fact that they are coming together and making their offerings, which is to say they're coming together liturgically right. on Sundays. More importantly, though, well, so St. Gregory the Great says that for us, the true Sabbath is the person of our Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's just saying everything I've said. The Sabbath is to prepare us for Christ. Mm -hmm. 
And Christ is our rest. He is our place of true leisure, our place of true worship. And so Christ is the fulfillment personally of it. And so his day, Sunday, uh, fittingly becomes the day of worship. St. John Paul II talks about it in the context of the Ten Commandments. And he says that this commandment depends upon the remembrance of God's saving works. And that because Christians saw the definitive time inaugurated by Christ as a new beginning, they made the first day after the Sabbath a festive day. For that was the day on which the Lord rose from the dead. The Paschal mystery of Christ is the full revelation of the mystery of the world's origin, the climax of the history of salvation, and the anticipation of the eschatological fulfillment of the world. End quote. To the extent that we are Adventists, meaning we believe Christ will come again at an unknown time, and we want to always be ready for that, mm -hmm. Sunday reminds us of that. You've got the creation of the world, you've got the resurrection from the dead, you've got this whole sense of new beginning. In a new beginning, which is ultimately going to be inaugurated in the second coming, when we have that newest and final beginning of this life eternally with Christ. So all of that is reflected and remembered and anticipated on Sunday in Mass. St. Paul talks about this as well. And so it's not just, you know, Pope Gregory and Pope John Paul II. <laughs> that sounds more like Ellen Goldweiss, like, oh no, the popes are doing this. But no. no. St. Paul explicitly warns against this kind of Sabbatarianism legalism. So he says in Colossians 2, 13 to 17, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. End quote. That, I think, very clearly explains all of this Old Testament stuff, including explicitly the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. This is all a shadow, a foreshadowing, a preparation for the coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ. The one we're celebrating right. in Advent. Christmas. And when he comes, he fulfills all of this. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you for not following the Jewish laws with food and drink or with the festivals and the new moons or the Sabbath. Now you would think, okay, given how astonishingly clear that is, why is anyone a Seventh-day Adventist? And I would say... From what I can tell, just as they were able to rationalize and explain away the Great Disappointment of 1844, they can rationalize and explain away a passage explicitly rejecting their whole theological foundation. Mm -hmm. So they'll say things like, well, the Sabbath that he's talking about there isn't the weekly Sabbath. It's these annual big celebrations. And the answer to that is just, no, that's not true. So he has three things that he mentions in terms of the calendar. The annual festivals the monthly new moons, and the weekly Sabbaths. So he's not saying festival or new moon or festival. <laughs> he's very clearly referring to the weekly Sabbath in that third category. Right. And we also see this if you compare this phrasing uh, with the Old Testament. So just to give one example. In 2 Kings 4.23, uh, the Shunammite woman was talking about going to visit the prophet Elisha, and her husband asked, quote, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath, end quote. 
So he's recognizing the fact that there are certain times on the calendar right. uh, that are set aside. And Paul is saying all of that stuff gets fulfilled with Christ, so don't be legalistic about it. This is also why we don't celebrate the Passover, for example. The Passover, you'll notice, was set up as a permanent festival. Yeah. Christ fulfills it and gives us a new Passover, namely the Last Supper and the Eucharist, and says, do this in remembrance of me. He calls it his Passover. Mm -hmm. He's showing uh, that he's above the calendar. He's the author of all time. All of these things were inaugurated for him or fulfilled by him. And so Christianity has its own version recalling these things. So we don't celebrate the Passover. Mm -hmm. Instead, we celebrate the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. Instead, we celebrate the Lord's Day, Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so it's that that's what it is. That's why we do what we do. Hey, thank you again to listeners for giving us a chance to do some research and explore and learn a lot. Um, and let's close out the episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.